This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit SalemPresWS.org. That's SalemPresWS.org. We believe preaching is best when experience is part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Usually we meet Sunday evenings in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. We hope to return to that soon. And as you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll come with us when we can gather in person. story is this week? Um, the feeding of the 5,000. Yep, that's right. And which chapter in Luke is it in? Nine. Yep, so we're going to be doing it from Luke 9. Is it in any other chapters of the Bible? Um, Matthew 14 and Mark 6. That's right. Okay, so tell us what the Jesus Storybook Bible calls this story. Um, fill the full. Nice. Okay, go ahead whenever you're ready. There were once 5,000 tired and hungry and probably very grumpy people sitting on a hillside wanting their dinner. They'd come to hear Jesus that day. They came before breakfast, stayed all morning, all afternoon, and way past dinner. No one had meant to be out there that long, but that's how it how it was listening to Jesus. As if as it as if as if time didn't exist. People could listen to Jesus for hours. And on this particular day that's just what they did. They had brought enough food. They hadn't brought enough food, and they couldn't just go and buy themselves a burger and fries to go because, because of course they were. They were in the middle. They were in the middle of nowhere, and no shops or restaurants. Besides, that kind of food wasn't invented yet. And what what would they do? Jesus' friends had an idea. Let's send everyone home for dinner. They don't need to go, Jesus said. You can give them something to eat. Did Jesus want them to travel all the way to town to buy food for everyone? Jesus, Jesus' friends panicked. But we don't have enough money. What food do you have, Jesus asked. Go and see. 
Now there was a little boy in the crowd. He had brought a lunch that his mother had made for him that morning. He looked at his five loaves and two fish. It wasn't much, but it wasn't much, not nearly enough for 5,000, but it was all he had. I have some, he said. Jesus' friends laughed when they saw his little lunch. That's not nearly enough, he said. But they were wrong. Jesus knew it didn't matter how much the little boy had. God would make it enough, more than enough. Jesus said, Bring me what you have. And so the little boy gave Jesus his lunch. Jesus winked at the... Jesus winked at the little boy and whispered in his ear, Watch. How in the world will Jesus feed everyone in the... In, um, feed everyone with just that, Jesus' friends said because they thought it was impossible. But Jesus knew that one, but that the Jesus knew the one who made who made all the fish in the oceans, and Jesus knew the one the one who in the very beginning had made everything out of nothing at all. How hard would something like this be for someone like that? Jesus took the little boy's lunch, looked up to heaven, and thanked his father. Then Jesus gave the, the little lunch back to his friends. As Jesus' friends started to hand out the food, do you know what? It was the strangest thing. No matter how much they broke off, there was always more, and more, and more, enough for 5,000. Everyone ate as much as they wanted. Second helpings, third helpings, even fourths. Until they were four, full. And still there were leftovers. Well, Jesus did make many miracles like this. Things people thought couldn't happen that were natural but was the most natural thing in all the world. It's, it's what God had been doing from the beginning, of course, taking nothing and making it everything, taking the emptiness and fill it up, taking the darkness and make it light. All right, thanks, buddy. Great job. You can take that with you. Say bye to everybody. Bye. <laughs> Thanks, bud. All right, like Sal said, this comes from Luke 9, verses 10 through 17. Luke 9, verses 10 through 17. If you want to stand, you can for the reading of God's word. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. 
And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there are about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of God for the people of God. Alright, so, uh, you know, I preached two weeks ago and then Ben preached last week and we both have sort of acknowledged that uh, you'll have to forgive that we're just sort of reading from where we are. It, it's, uh, it's just kind of how it goes with how we're, uh, how we're seated with a screen in front of us rather than a pulpit so um the book of luke i love the book of luke i took a whole class on it in seminary where we just studied the book of luke in greek and um i read it a lot and one of the things that's very apparent when you read the book of luke in one sitting is that it has four main sections and they're quite distinct each of them and they do a great job of highlighting the different parts of jesus's life uh, the first four chapters are his birth and his preparation for ministry. And then chapters four through nine are his ministry in Galilee, which is marked by controversy, no one understanding him, healings, and miracles. We're near the end of that section, and we're on the cusp of a major shift in the book where Jesus will begin his journey towards Jerusalem. He'll arrive and minister in Jerusalem in the next section, and then that's followed by the last section, which is his suffering, death, and resurrection. In hiking terms, Jesus is about to do a switchback. His disciples will finally begin to understand that he's not just a prophet, but he's Lord. Still, make no mistake, they will not change mindsets too much, which is a comfort to us. They will behave foolishly, in today's passage, and they will immediately after recognizing his lordship get in arguments over who's the greatest apostle. That will continue through the whole book. Even Peter, his closest disciple, will deny him and will fail to embrace him often. Jesus and his disciples spent a long spell out and about in Galilee, with Jesus healing and the disciples praying alongside him. And now they're going to find some respite, or so they hope. Going to Bethsaida implies that they're going to this less populated area, a fishing village. They're probably going to catch and cook some fish over a fire, stay in a fisherman's cottage, and talk. The disciples are probably really looking forward to this alone time with Jesus and the space to recharge. I find it interesting that when Jesus secludes himself, he still brings his closest friends. It speaks to our need of 
friendship, uh, our need for friendship. This story actually, this idea of eating fish and having a fire and being with close friends reminds me of my friends, uh, this group we call ourselves the Mill Pond Boys, and we get together once a year. It's a group of nine pastors, and for just five days, we stay in a house together and pray and recharge. And one particular year actually really stands out to me. We stayed on the Rappahannock River, and we, uh, we ate oysters. Even I ate oysters, even though I'm a vegetarian, because our friend Han Su had bought them straight off a dock in Baltimore, and they were super fresh, and he was shucking them for us. And there was this fire pit, which if you've ever seen my fire pit, uh, this fire pit on the Rappahannock was what uh, inspired my fire pit at my house. And it was just a really soul-giving time. And I can't imagine if that time that I had been so looking forward to was interrupted by a large crowd. So that thirst that I had for that, I think it's this thirst that was in the disciples, and it's a natural thirst for us. I think it means that we should be comforted to know that we were not created for the isolation that we're currently experiencing or the aloneness that we might feel at other times. The aching we feel to have good friendships is something that we should listen to. And oftentimes, there's little we can do about it, unfortunately, which makes us wonder whether that feeling is something that we're just supposed to get over. And just know that those aches for friendship are not sin. You were made to connect. The evil one can definitely use them to make us envious, or bitter or jealous of others, which is something that should be resisted for our own sake. But the aches in themselves are true, and Jesus is sad with you in that feeling of aloneness. The Trinity shows us that we were created to be uh, intertwined with our lives, and yet no one embodies that aloneness more than Jesus at times. Their boat is ready to dock in Bethsaida, a long-awaited retreat from pouring into strangers and traveling endlessly. But that's interrupted by a crowd giving chase. They're pressing in and pressing in. So Jesus does the hospitable thing. And he decides to speak with them. So a misapplication of this passage would be to say that Jesus always had time for people and no boundaries. That might be the uh, misguided impulse of some Christian traditions. There's this old sensibility in some evangelical circles that Jesus is motivated by a sort of spiritual workaholism that we should mimic. And that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus valued boundaries, the boundary of spending time secluded with friends in prayer. He made space to connect with his closest friends and with his father. On the flip side, Jesus didn't have a mindset of caring for himself first. In Mark, it says that Jesus had sympathy or compassion for the crowd. He pities those who do not know the gospel. So it says that he welcomed them, he spoke with them, he cured and healed them. He's being hospitable, attentive, counseling, physician-like with the broken. Mark says Jesus pitied them because they were sheep without a shepherd. They're a helpless crowd wandering without food or security. 
Calvin puts it this way, it was because he saw famishing souls whom the warmth of zeal had carried away from their homes and led into a desert place. Jesus is not breaking his back to get the job done, but he is allowing the broken to interrupt him. He'll later find time to connect with his father, but he does not put himself above others. Christians uh, would be wise to observe the tension that's held together by Christ, not so desperate for self-care that the broken are jettisoned, but also not willing to make a life of pious prayer secondary to Christian works. The apostles are not wrong in saying to Jesus, please send them away. They're concerned for these people. The desperation of these broken people is evident in that they came to a town with little provision, no stores, not a lot going on, so that they could see Jesus. There was no food for them, and it was getting dark. And the crowd seems to trust that they're just going to survive. The problem is the disciples have immediately forgotten the power of Jesus. These people, this crowd, were willing to follow him in their desperation because they needed his power. But the disciples are resorting to pragmatism. They're forgetting the power of Jesus, not just to provide, but to create something from nothing, which actually the Jesus Storybook Bible does a great job of alluding to, that Jesus was there in the beginning when the Father created uh, everything from nothing. It's always comforting me comforting to me how aloof and forgetful and unbelieving the disciples are. It says in verse 11 that Jesus was healing people. So in this actual moment where Jesus is healing people in, uh, in live time, even as he performs miracles before their eyes, they forget and they turn to pragmatism and problem solving instead of faith. Jesus presses on in calmness. He pokes them a little. And he says, uh, why don't you guys go get some food for the crowd of 5,000 people here? Thank you. Jesus had them sit down in groups of 50 or 100. And I might be reading into this too much, but I find it interesting that he makes them sit in groups instead of feeding individuals in a line. It points, for me at least, to God's constant assembling of people into groups. These are like little churches, groups of people chatting about his teaching and breaking bread together. All 5,000 people are presumably compliant, and he begins the meal. I have to pause for a moment and restart the Instagram live stream. So I was just saying that um, all 5,000 of these people are presumably compliant, and he begins the meal. And as an educated American, I scoff at uh, blind obedience, and I tremble at the idea of Christians being caricatured as simpletons who follow without evidence. But there is something beautiful that my own faith lacks that's present here. 
These people left behind their homes to go to a desolate place to find balm for the soul. When there they trusted, they would be provided for, and when instructed, they followed. They're like the birds and the lilies, and I am not. We see Jesus nourishes his people, and the source of that nourishment is God's gift. Jesus thanks his Father for the loaves and fishes, just as he does on the night of the Last Supper. The Father gives to these people a healer to the sick, a shepherd for the wandering, food for the body, and teaching for the soul. He's the giver of gifts to both our soul and our body, and when he gives, it's satisfying. It says in verse 17, they ate, they were satisfied, and there was abundance. We learned so much about the character of God in this little anecdote. Jesus welcomes the people, he speaks to them, he heals, he feeds, he satisfies, and there's abundance. God speaks to us. He heals us, he feeds us, he satisfies us, and there's abundance when he does. But attention remains. Some of us do not get the healing that we want. We don't get an appetite satiated, a desire satisfied, and abundance eludes many. We can be sure that when he speaks, when he heals, when he feeds, it satisfies, and it comes in abundance. When he does it, when he speaks, heals, and feeds, it satisfies, and it comes in abundance. But he doesn't always do that. When we're satisfied and enjoy abundance, whenever we feel that way, we can credit God. That's when he does. And sometimes he does, and sometimes he does not. The only logic we can apply to why he sometimes heals, sometimes feeds, sometimes speaks, and sometimes does not, is because there's only one gift that he wants us to always be aware of. One gift that applies to all wounds, not just the acute, all maladies, not just our physical sicknesses, and all transgressions. We can be sure he gives us one thing that encompasses his hospitable open arms, his healing touch, his satisfying food, and more than enough. He does not always heal our bodies. He does not always speak to our souls. He does not always feed our appetites. He does not always give us that thing that we are looking for. But if we go looking for the one thing that will always be abundant, the grace of Christ bought with his body and blood, we will be satisfied. And so that, interestingly enough, is why people deprive themselves historically during Lent. That's something that gets made fun of a lot by Protestants. People say, I don't like to give up things because it's legalistic. Or uh, I've mentioned this before that Sometimes people just give up things for self-improvement. It's, it's kind of how Lent uh, gets moved. You know, I'm going to quit drinking so I sleep better. I'm going to uh, change my diet so I can lose some weight. But really, the historic reason that people have given things up for Lent is to refocus what is the true thing that we need for nourishing. 
And so in our deprivation, we're aware of our sin, we're aware of our need, we're aware of the things that we try to find nourishment from, and then it culminates in the Last Supper. When Jesus gathered with his friends on the night that he was betrayed, broke bread, gave thanks to his Father for it, and shared it with the disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup and he poured out the cup saying, this is my blood for you to drink, shed for you as the blood of the new covenant. And what Jesus was saying in that was that uh, I will, as your Lord, your King, as your friend, it says, as your friend, I will be there to speak to you. I will be there to heal you. I will be there to feed you. But not always in the way that you think you need. But one thing that you can always count on, every time you gather, remind yourselves of this, that I will feed you with my body and my blood, the once for all time sacrifice that brings victory over death, that pays our debt in full. Every week we end our service we, uh, with, with the Lord's Supper. Um, if you got to see, I made a long video this week explaining it. And one of the things I commented on is that for us as Presbyterians, the sermon is the penultimate moment, not the ultimate moment in our worship service. The Lord's Supper is the ultimate moment because we talk all through the service about our sin, about the beauty of God, about the beauty of the community that he creates, but all of it is to point to what he has ultimately done to make all those things possible and to reconcile broken people to a perfect God. And so it's hard for us to not be able to do that physically but we want to remind ourselves of that truth each week. And we can do that by recalling those words of institution. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing one more song. Father, thank you that you feed us, that you nourish us, that you have time for us when we come chasing after you. Thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that it says in the letters of Paul that your blood speaks a better word than any of the empty claims upon this earth. And so we, uh, we thank you for your blood and your body poured out for us. And Lord, we pray that going into this week where my friends in this church will be stuck in their homes homeschooling, or out in hospitals, uh, working, or um, keeping industry alive through construction and service. Uh, I pray that we would, uh, in the moving or the stillness of humanity, in the strangeness of this time, that this uh, awkward change in our culture, refocus us, to turn our